talking about the awkward, essential uh, challenge of Christian community and what that means to live together. And so next week, we're going to start the book of Ephesians. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, make sure you bring it. Um, I wanted to buy little copies. So if you go on to crossway.com or lifeway.com, you can get what's referred to as a, like a, a journal, journal Bible kind of thing. And so on one half it has scripture, and then on the other side it has open notes, and so that you can fill out your own notes if you'd like to do that. I was going to buy those. They're on back order, and so they will not be here in time. And because I'm OCD, that was not acceptable to me. So I'm telling you about it so that if you would like to get them, uh, good luck. Uh, But today, I want to finish up on this series, and we're going to finish strong as we talk about what it means to be uncomfortable together. And so I want to ask you, why do we get together? Why are we here? What are we doing? Why does ABC exist? And so really what I want to talk about today as far as this uncomfortable community known as believers, why it's essential, one of the things that's essential is we've got to know our function. We've got to know what we're doing, what our role is. Now, perhaps you've heard of Dr. Seuss. Any, anybody not heard of Dr. Seuss? Oh, you see, see how I was going there? Gotcha. So if you, have, if you have heard of Dr. Seuss, you've probably heard of the Lorax. And if you've heard of the Lorax, then you've probably heard of a Thneed. Well, I want to define that for you, because like me, you probably didn't know what a Thneed is. Well, a Thneed is a highly versatile object knitted from the foliage of a truffle tree. That you might have known. Did you know that it's softer than silk with the sweet-smelling aroma of fresh butterfly milk? Maybe. But this need can take on a large variety of forms. There's different types of functions that it can perform. And they give a list in that book of the Lorax. It says it can be a shirt, a sock, it's a glove, it's a hat. But it has other functions, yes, far beyond that. You can use it for carpets, for pillows, for sheets, for curtains or covers, for bicycle seats. And in that book, according to the Wunsler, it is a fine something that all people need. Now, I would say the same about the church. But I think the problem with the church is that so many churches try to be so many things to so many people, we've actually forgotten our function. We've actually forgotten our primary responsibility. And so I want to talk about that this morning. What is our function? As a body of believers that gather together, what are we here for? What is our purpose? What is our duty? What is our function? And I think for some of us, this function might be a little uncomfortable, or from time to time it might be uncomfortable, but that doesn't change that that is exactly what we're called to. And so before we jump into the text, will you please join with me in prayer? God, our Father, we praise you for allowing us to gather here today. We ask that you would clarify for us in our minds what is the function and the call as Christians who collectively gather together in this body of believers known as your church. Help us, we pray, not only to have clarity, but conviction that culminates into action as we do that which we are called to as your beloved bride, your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I think that we need to understand is the church is called to worship. And his worship should be and is our joy. Now, worship takes on a lot of different forms in a lot of different churches all over the globe, not just here in America. But the, his worship is one of the primary functions of the church. If you have notes, uh, which I tried to print off some, or if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn quickly or you can look up here. 
Psalm 95, 1 through 2 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this comment about it. He says, this is how Christianity conquered the ancient world. It was this amazing joy of these people, even when you threw them into prison, or even to death. It did not matter. They went on rejoicing. Rejoicing in tribulation. And isn't that the characteristic that we all want somebody to say of us? That it didn't matter the circumstance of our lives, but that somehow there was the presence of the Lord that they could see upon us. When they looked at us and they saw the sorrow or the different struggles, they said, I don't know how they get through that, but somehow I know they must have God because of the way that they handle these situations. That's exactly what Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones was saying there in his uh, quote. And so I want to define worship for you. But I, before I define it for you, I want to ask you, what's your definition of worship? Because I think that we have, in our modern Christianity, uh, we have both uh, narrowed as well as widened worship to not encompass everything maybe it should. For example, on Sunday morning, when most people think of worship, they don't think of what I'm doing right now. They think of what we just did, singing. To them, worship is only the time where we stand. We all face the same direction. We all look at a screen or people on the stage, and we sing these songs. When in fact, that is not all of what worship is. Or we have widened it to the outside where where people can say things like, hey, I worship God uh, out by myself on a hilltop while I do Pilates and pose for the Instagram pics that I'm about to take. Well, you see, we have both narrowed and widened the focus to where worship has kind of lost its function. I want to start as my definition with worship by explaining to all of us, myself included, worship is not something we give to God. I want to say that again. Worship is not something we give to God. It's something God is owed. It is what a right response to God is. Just as if you saw an amazing sunset from a mountain vista, you would instinctively have a joy in you. Maybe you would even raise your hands or stretch them out. If you right now could see God could understand who he is. If your mind could fathom what he's done for you, what he's doing for you, what he's doing in you, what he's been happening around you, and all his attributes and his characters, we would all, as scripture tells us, fall upon our faces. It would be as natural as it is for a fish to breathe water. That's what worship is. It's not something we give. It's what he demands. It's who he is. Uh, Psalm 148. I won't read the whole thing. It's a short psalm, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun, moon. All these things, all of creation should be about the business of praising God. Now in scripture, uh, we have bending, serving, honoring, all these different things. Well, as we move forward, one of the problems with this is we can sometimes show up and have the wrong frame of heart. Romans 121 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's not the one I wanted to read. I wanted to read Matthew 15, 8 through 9, but the problem is they weren't worshiping God. Here's the one that I was going with. 
We can show up sometimes with the wrong intentions of our heart. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. Now, I don't know about you, but it's scriptures like that that deeply scare me. I don't want, at the end of my life, to stand before God and for him to say to me, depart from me, for I never knew you. I want to worship God rightly. And I trust that you do too. And if you don't yet, I hope that after this first part of the sermon that you will then want to. And so I guess without further ado, what does it mean to worship? What does that look like? Well, firstly, worship is focusing on and responding to God. We have to understand that he is worthy and nothing else is. That was my reference in Romans. They understood his worth and yet they still denied him his praise. This is what Israel does throughout the Old Testament. This is the difference between worship or worship. They went after false gods and false idols. They went after themselves. They were focusing on the wrong thing. They weren't responding to God rightly. When I was down in seminary, I was volunteering to teach a college group down there. And I would use this illustration with them, and, and maybe it'll be of some benefit to you, so I'll use it of you, with you right now. You don't have to shut your eyes, uh, but maybe that helps you if you have a, a bad imagination. But what I want for you to do for a moment is just try to think of all the things that you can think of of, of who God is, right? Imagine him out in space somewhere and try to fill your mind with how large he must be or how powerful he must be or how loving he must be or whatever attributes that you can think of that make up God. And then I want for you to just a minute understand that all of what you've just come up with, everything that you've just imagined or or put into your mind, comes from you only from what we get from Scripture. And all of that, God is seeking to describe himself to a fallen people with futile, darkened hearts and minds like ours, who can only begin to understand that by the Holy Spirit. And even then, he uses human words to describe himself. And when he describes himself to Moses, he doesn't even bother. He just says, just tell them, I am sent you. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. He is worthy. We cannot even begin to understand how worthy he is. And so it pains me when I hear people who are wounded by the church and so they say, hey, I don't want to go back there because somebody there hurt me. And it's like, man, but if you only knew how big God was and how much he loves you, those foolish people at that place that hurt you, you wouldn't care about that anymore because he is God. When we focus on and respond to God, we have no other choice but to worship. That's what I mean. It's not something we give. It is as natural to us as spiritual creatures. When we focus on God and respond to him, we bring worship. And so I also want to preface that and just ask the question, how often before you enter in these doors do you think to yourself or pray to God and ask him, God, will you help me not focus on me this morning? 
Will you, will you help me lay everything that I am and that I'm going through? Will you help me lay all of that aside and just come to just, to just worship you? Will you bring me all of you this morning? I, I know that there's finances and health and family and culture and all those things out there, but, but God, can, will you just help me leave those things at the door and when I walk in, be undone by the expanse of who you are? Second, as you can see on your screen there, is worship is done in spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit is to worship him from the inside out. It's great when we sing songs that have us lift our hands. But if we're not lifting our hands in our hearts, then what are we doing? It's also fine to stand stock still. But if we're not on our faces before our holy God in our hearts, then are we truly worshiping? But we have to balance that with worshiping in, in, in spirit is also worshiping in the truth. And so I love to go to a church service where there are a lot of spirit worshipers going on. And maybe you understand what I mean by that. Where things are really powerful. Where people are lifting their hands. Where tears are screaming, to, or screaming, tears are streaming down faces. Uh, you, you know, where, where, where people are just enraptured with that. But if we're not also worshiping in truth, that we're not truly worshiping God. You see, we have to worship the God who is, not the God who we want to be. And the only way we know that is by Scripture. And so part of the uncomfortable thing of, of worship is, is we can't simply sing songs to God like he's our, you know, long-distance relationship girlfriend. There has to be more reverence than that. And at the same time, because our God is loving, because he is personal, because he is spiritual, we can't just sing about cold doctrine all the time. It has to be personal. And so as we worship God, it must be done in spirit and in truth. It has to be alive. It means to be sincere in our acts of worship. I want to ask you, if it isn't sincerity, then what is it? And do you really want to bring that to God? We are to worship according to the truth of Scripture. We are to worship the God as he is revealed in the Bible. So just as I have said, focusing on and responding to God, are you asking him to help you worship in spirit and in truth? Are you coming in in the morning and asking for him to help you to be sincere in your worship? And I just want to be really honest and frank with you sometimes. I don't feel like worshiping God. Sometimes I don't feel like praying. You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I'm just going to guess that if you have two eyes in your head and ears on the side, that you probably fit that description as well. Read the Psalms. There's 150 of them, right? 59 are lament. And so I'm not saying, when I say sincere, understand what I say is it's okay to worship God and feel sad. It's okay to worship God and feel angry about something or, or not understand something. But sincere worship is being able to then take that anger and say, yeah, I, I don't like this. I don't understand this. I don't want this. But you're God. And so I'm going to bring it to you anyway. 
And I'm going to trust you anyway, or being sad, or being depressed. All those things are still being sincere. I'm not talking about what most people want on churches on Sunday, which is for you to show up with a fake plastic smile. When anybody asks you how you're doing, the only appropriate answer is one of two things, either good or fantastic. That's it, okay? And then you shake hands, and you have coffee, and you get entertained by the, by the worship team, and then you go about your business where nobody knows what's really going on. That is not sincere. So it's okay to be broken. But we have to come to that both in spirit and in truth. That is worship. The next two are this. Worship is expected both publicly and privately. Private worship, your own devotional time, is good, but it is not enough. And public worship should be fulfilling, but is not sufficient. It takes both. You see, that is the joy of what Sunday is. And so I want to be very clear. If you're here this morning, and this is all you get of Bible then I want to beg you to reconsider what you're doing and how you view God and your relationship with Him. What this is, what this should be, is just a booster shot for the rest of your week. Maybe some of you were turned off by that term. This is supposed to be a turbo boost. I don't, whatever, man, okay? Like, I just, I just thought of the illustration right now. Leave me alone. What I'm saying is, this is the big meeting before we send you out and then you continue your own stuff on your own. This is not your whole bread and butter. Okay, This is dessert after the rest of the meal that you've been having the rest of the week. Private worship is good, but it's not enough. And public worship can be fulfilling, but it's not sufficient. There has to be more than that. In fact, I'm going to say the quality of your own personal devotional life is going to change how you feel and how you experience Sunday morning. Maybe that's a radical thought to you. But I'm going to test me. Study God's Word. Be in prayer. And I'm not talking about like you got to go get a seminary degree every single week. I'm just saying spend some time with God. And then come on Sunday and see the difference. Or... Don't spend any time with God. And then force yourself to wake up, to come to a building with a bunch of other uncomfortable people, and then see what happens. On the other hand, we can have an amazing, spirit-filled worship service from the beginning all the way to the end, where you just come in and you're like, man, everything was on point today. When I came in, the coffee was there, and it was hot, and I got greeted by people, and I sat down, and my best friend was there, and they washed, so they smelled good, and then, and then the worship team was on point, and then the sermon was awesome, and I'm going to leave here, and that's great. But how's the rest of your week? There are certain experiences with God that he only gives in our private worship time. And I don't want you to rob yourself of that.
Fourthly, then, worship is a spiritual discipline to be cultivated. We don't talk about that very much. Nobody likes these kind of terminologies, right? I want to take a pill and lose weight and eat whatever I want. I don't want discipline in my lives, in my life. I got more than one. But this is something to be cultivated. We have to be about the business of seeking to understand God more so that we can worship him more fully. I mean, if you truly believe that there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill, and then you get to know Christ, Christ saves you, you're reborn, you're redeemed, um, you're saved, and so you, you have Christ in your heart, and he fills that hole. Is that the end of it? Uh, I mean, what if I were to ask my wife to marry me, and she says, yes, I put the ring on her finger, we go through all the motions, and I say, okay, I'll, well, I guess I'll see you around. That's not a good relationship. And so this is a spiritual discipline to be cultivated. To, to worship God throughout a lifetime requires discipline. Without this, our worship is going to be thin and, and inconsistent. And so the reason I'm telling you this is because I want your worship to be full. I want your worship to be experiential as, as well as truthful. I want your worship to be robust. Not so that I can hear loud voices on Sunday. So I'm not even talking about singing. I want for the angels in heaven to marvel at the sound of your hearts every day of the week and especially be blown away on Sunday morning when we get to uncomfortably gather together and work through this together. And so this kind of worship is difficult. This kind of worship is the kind that we should practice and it's going to be uncomfortable. His worship is our joy. And if it's not your joy, then find out more about your God. Second, his witness is our goal. Remember, we're talking about the function of the church. Firstly, his worship, and then also his witness. His witness is our goal. And we see that Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We just got done with it, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then David Platt makes this statement. Um, I love this man's passion for missions. If you've ever heard anybody talk on missions, this guy is the guy who will make you want to just drop everything and go. When will the concept of unreached peoples become intolerable to the church? What will it take to wake us up to the dearth of the gospel among the peoples of the world? I will never forget this conversation. This happened in seminary. It was in a theology class. And we were talking about missiology, which is the doctrines of missions and stuff like that. There's tons of 50 cent words in seminary that I had to raise my hand and ask for all the time because i just not that bright. But anyway, the illustration was this. There's a guy on an island all by himself. He lives there. He dies there. Does he go to heaven or does he go to hell? And the unfortunate answer to that question is, after all this, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a seminary class in 10 minutes. It's three hours for me. The unfortunate answer to that question is, he goes to hell. Why? Because he doesn't know the name of Jesus. Does that bother you? Because it should. And so the answer that that seminary professor gave to me is, if that bothers you, congratulations, you're called into missions. And by the way, that guy on the island lives right next door 
He comes home and shuts his garage door and then never comes out until you see him the next morning when he gets into his car, drives off to work, and shuts the garage door. And you know he's home because he pulls in and shuts the garage door and then you see the TV on in his living room. That's your neighbor. That's his island. And so his witness is our goal. I've got four, or I've got five here. So firstly, witness includes holy living. We kind of talked about this a little bit before when we were talking about other uncomfortable things. But we're so often excited about going to the other end of the world, and we're less excited about producing spiritual fruit within us by submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We really want to see those, the, those people in New Guinea saved, but I don't want to deal with my own personal anger, lust, pride, my own issues. You see, witness includes holy living. Missions and morality cannot be separated. If we don't practice what we preach, then why should anyone listen to what we teach? Secondly, witness includes all of creation. Romans eight nineteen. For the creation waits eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God, or Colossians one twenty. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. You see, you might think that recycling or turning the water off or not dumping your oil down the drain or something, that those are all liberal tree hugger issues. But you're a steward. In the garden, God gave you a little piece of your own kingdom. And you're supposed to maintain it for his glory. And so kids, when you leave the room, shut the lights off for God's glory. Okay? Yeah. I was wondering if I was going to get one out of that. But this is not just a liberal issue. Now, now, now here's the deal. There are people who worship creation rather than the creator and they make it a primary issue it's not however part of our salvation and the mission includes all of creation meaning you should care what happens to polar bears it should not change your entire world christ does that but because we're christians there ought to be some kind of response to what happens to that and I know this is a touchy subject, so we'll just move on. If you have more questions, then come and attack me after service, I guess, if you want. Uh, third, a witness requires service as well as speech. Our gospel witness involves both word and, de- and deed, proclamation as well as demonstration. So again, to some degree, social justice clothing those who are naked, feeding those who are hungry, some of those things are important and they should be done because Scripture talks about what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, does not, if it does not have works, is dead. On the other hand, Scripture also says in 2 Thessalonians, which is New Testament, right? If that makes a difference to you, it's all God's Word. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you uh, this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, not busybodies, or I'm sorry, not busy at work, but instead busybodies. Now such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus that to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So there's a dichotomy, and it's not my job to fix that for you. This is the uncomfortable function of the church. Yes, it requires that we feed and clothe, and that I'm not talking about social justice. I'm talking about the gospel, because faith without works is dead, just like your witness. You can't just say, hey, I'll just be a good person and love people, and then somehow, miraculously, they're going to know I'm a Christian, and they're going to receive Christ. No. People are saved by the hearing of God's word and by hearing by that which is taught. Are all of you called to be a preacher? No. Thank goodness, I'd be out of a job, right? But every single one of you should be able to know how to articulate the gospel well enough that if somebody was hit by a car and laying on the side of the road, that you could at very bare minimum, within a minute, share the gospel with them so they might have some hope of eternal life. Have you ever even thought about that? Have you ever even thought, God, what if, I'm, what if I'm on the side of the road sometime with somebody who's literally dying and I have less than five minutes, I have two minutes, could I share the gospel with them in a way that they might actually be able to understand it? That's a challenge I have for you. Find, find a kid. Explain it to a kid. And also, by the way, our faith is worth sharing. The good news we have is not just good news. It is the best news. You should be desirous of times and places and people to not just have it be service, but also speech. Last two. Witness is costly. Maybe one of the most uncomfortable aspects, but yet crucial signs of a healthy mission is that it actually costs us things. It costs us money, it costs us time, it costs us people. We have to say hard goodbyes. We have to be able to bless our friends and our neighbors and be thankful as they travel from this church to other churches or to other places or nations. And as they move, we have to rejoice with that, that knowing that we are going to send them out as a missionary for God's kingdom, not for the kingdom of ABC. It means sometimes saying goodbye to family Finance, of course, or even fun. I'm going to share what I believe was a sin on my part with you. Elisa and I were down at the beach. We go to the beach. Well, not recently, obviously. We were down at the beach. And uh, we were sitting there. It's my day off. And there's like three adults over here on the left-hand side. And uh, I didn't grow up during the time of hippies. But if I had, probably would have been the category that I would place them in if I was being sinfully judgmental, right? So there they were. And uh, the the gentleman came up and spoke to me, and I made nice with him or whatever, and um, and then he went back. And, and I told Elisa, I think I'm ready to go. Because I don't really want to, it's my day off, I don't really want to be here. And then we got in the car and I thought to myself, that was your opportunity. And you cared more about your own day off, about not talking to strangers, 
about your own personal discomfort. I mean, I had a book that I wanted to read, y'all. How dare you? And so sometimes being a witness simply costs something so stupid and frivolous as fun. Because let's be honest, if anybody here should be able to articulate the gospel, who should it be? If anybody here should be willing to share with strangers, who should it be? And I failed. I have gospel tracks in my car now. I don't want to fail again. But also, witness is mundane. Because sometimes being a witness looks like a stay-at-home mom who teaches four kids diligently. Tries to live out Christian principles every day. Sometimes it looks like a a 65-year-old mechanic who just retired who maybe doesn't have a, a single commentary in their, in their library, but has been faithful in leading three children and one grandchild to Christ. Sometimes it's a student who simply sits at the wrong lunch table so that they can befriend someone who has no other friends and show them what it means to have the love of Christ. You see, sometimes I think we think of missions as, you know, sailing the seven seas over squall and gale to a tribe of people that will probably throw spears at you and somehow you deliver them the gospel. And instead, maybe it's just having your neighbors over for a barbecue this summer. Kevin DeYoung, great author, great writer, great scholar, says this, in the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more of an impliatus from Romans 16.8, which is a name you don't know, that's his point, or phlegion from verse 14, than the Apostle Paul. And maybe that's why so many Christians are getting tired of the church, We haven't learned how to be part of the crowd. We haven't learned to be ordinary. Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times often seem like or feel like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. Life is usually pretty ordinary. Just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revelation each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So this kind of witness is often unpopular. It's uncomfortable. But this witness is our joy. It's our goal. And so I'll end with this. Thank you for your patience. This is who the church is, and therefore what the church does. This is our function. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I have two quotes here. I forget which one I have on the screen. Okay, Richard Baxter I've got on the screen. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The glory of the gospel is that... 
when the church is absolutely different from the world, she inevitably, invariably attracts the world. And Richard Baxter, a great theologian and writer, said, how rare it is to meet with the man that smarts or bleeds with the church's wounds or sensibly takes them to heart as his own. And I think sometimes if we're honest, the, way, the reason we don't function this way is just quite frankly, we've just become bored. Nothing I've told you today is probably new if you've been to church for any long period of time. You know this. But we've become bored. We've become a bride who takes off her ring in public. We, we've become a husband who no longer brings cards and flowers. We've just got bored. We've got bored with these truths. But we are the beloved of Christ. This is a covenant relationship. This is our marriage. This God King died for you personally. And it's this uncomfortable church is the one that challenged us to grow. It's these standards that we talked about, the standards that we will raise the bar and not lower it. That is what makes it uncomfortable. But by golly, that's what makes us grow. You've heard Arnold say plenty of times, no pain, no gain, right? Countercultural comfort is what's found in Christianity. It's probably most clearly seen in the Beatitudes. There's eight of them there. I'm going to list them for you, but I'm going to tell you. In a world where we are all self-sufficient with small g gods of our own, and depravity is a four-letter word, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In a culture that heralds happiness and celebrates sin, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In a Darwin-driven money and mansions culture that rewards self-promotion, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. to the cult of consumerism where we chase our next fix of self-gratification. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In a time of cancel culture and political correctness where judgment and offense reign supreme, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In a society that says to be true to yourself by breaking free from the old dilapidated religious regime, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To a time where mob rule and equality or equity by force are cherished as bravery, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then lastly, to those who view personal autonomy and self-preservation at any cost, uh, any cost as some trans, transcendent achievement, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the church is the body of his kingdom here on earth. And our uncomfortable function is to be salt and light. This is how we worship.
because his worship is our joy. This is how we witness, because his witness is our goal. This is who his church is, and therefore what we do, what it does. Because that's just the uncomfortable function of the church. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have called us to be your beloved. The deepest desire of our hearts is to worship you well. To love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We desire that through your spirit in us, we would be a witness for you. And that all might know what is the surpassing worth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.